Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're getting into 2 Samuel 19 and 20. We will be done with this book probably maybe October 15th. I think we probably have two more Sundays in this. Yeah, we've got two more Sundays in this. When we're done with this book, we're gonna jump into the New Testament and we're gonna study Thessalonians. Now my original plan was I'm going, why? Because Jesus is coming back and you need to know what's in the book. Um, My original plan was to just study 1 Thessalonians Doggone it, 2 Thessalonians is so good, we're gonna throw that one in there too. So, and it's only three chapters. So my original plan was to just do 1 Thessalonians, but we're gonna change that. We're gonna finish, so halfway through October and then through November, we're gonna cover the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then the beginning December, we're gonna jump into Luke. Uh, we'll, be, we'll do the beginning half of Luke as kind of our Advent message series, and then as we go into the beginning of next year, we'll finish Luke. Um, and I haven't kind of put the, the full touches on the calendar yet, but that will take us probably through most of the first half of the year into the summer. And by the time we get into the summer, then we're gonna jump into First and Second Kings for next year, okay? So that's kind of where we're headed. And as I've said multiple times, uh, after First and Second Kings next year, uh, when we get into 2025, that's a long time, uh, I wanna do a message series on the Minor Prophets. Because if there is one collection of books that the church I think is the, the least familiar with, it's the Minor Prophets. And in the Hebrew Bible, they're not split up into 12 books, it's called the Book of the Twelve and they're all collected together, so that's how we're gonna study them. So if you just plan on sticking around for the next year and a half, two years, we'll get to the Minor Prophets. But we're starting today at the end of 2 Samuel, um, just a quick recap on what's happening because last week was the end of a six chapter saga of David committing adultery, murdering a man to cover it up, and God bringing judgment on his house in the form of what's called Absalom's rebellion. So David's youngest son rose up against his father, drove him out of Jerusalem. And last week we ended with six chapters of sorrow and the judgment of, uh, the judgment of God on David's house coming to completion. So um, essentially what happened was when David was run out of town, Absalom came in and set himself up as king and he was given the advice to chase David down and kill him. But in that battle, David didn't die, Absalom died. Now where we pick up our story today at the very end of 18, beginning of 19, David doesn't know that Absalom is dead yet. A messenger is about to bring that news to him. And the questions we have to consider as we read through 19 and 20 is now that the war is over and Absalom is dead, how is David gonna pick up the pieces of his kingdom? How should a returning king act? After failure, what do you do? When you have sinned and God has punished you and brought judgment, when the consequences and the full weight of your sin has come to its full fruition, what do you do next? How do you go home and how do you rebuild? And, and how, do you, how do you treat the people 
How does David treat the people when he goes home to Jerusalem that rebelled against him, that chose his son Absalom over him? When David comes home, how is he going to treat them? Will there be more bloodshed or will he walk in forgiveness? How do you rebuild after failure? That's what we're gonna be studying today as we go through 19 and 20. So let's pick up the story with the messenger coming to David, telling him that the war is over and his son is dead. We're gonna start in 2 Samuel 18, 31. It says, behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news for my Lord the King, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king, who is David, said to Cushite, who is this messenger, it is well with the young man Absalom? He's asking about his son. And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. He's dead, king. And I pray that anybody who tries to take your throne in the future will suffer the same death Verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went to the upper chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And he was told to Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all of the people. For the people heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom my son, my son. So Joab came into the house of the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and the servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And the king arose, took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and the people came before the king. So messengers bring news to David that war is over and that the rebel is dead and his response is to weep and cry. He weeps and cries so loud that his weeping affects the entire nation. Everyone who hears his weeping immediately starts weeping. The whole army is depressed. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is why is David weeping? David didn't seem to care much for Absalom. When Absalom killed David's other son and went into hiding, it was three years before anything was done to bring him home. 
And when Absalom finally did come home, he lived just down the road from his dad, and for two years, his dad refused to see him. Now imagine that. Two years, David is living in his castle, and Absalom is living right down the road, and they're not talking. David has time to meet with everybody. He's, he's got Mephibosheth, who is not even related to him. He's related to the former king that was his enemy. Saul's grandson is eating at David's table every single night, but Absalom can't talk to his own dad. Why is David weeping? I think there's two reasons why David's weeping. The first is because David, in all of his mistakes, did love his son. And in all of his son's mistakes, still loved his son. And this is the third son to die because of David's sin. This is all connected to his sin with Bathsheba and the murdering of her husband. He lost three children because of this. And by the time we get into 1 Kings, he's gonna lose a fourth. David is a broken man and he's broken because of his own sin. And that leads into the second reason why I think that he's crying, is because when David looks at his life, he's viewing his own sin as the real motivation behind Absalom's rebellion. And this is unique, because we, as we start to consider what kind of king is David gonna be as he goes home, he's showing himself as the kind of king that he started his reign as. He's finally the shepherd again. He's the good shepherd and he's coming back and one of the first things that a good shepherd does, it doesn't constantly beat and blame the sheep. The shepherd considers in his own heart what sin is going on in my life that has led to the garbage that I see around me. What role have I played in all of this mess? That's the kind of leader that David is. But there's somebody in the story that doesn't understand that because he's a different kind of leader. And this is the beauty of the way that God writes his story. He never just gives us a list of laws and says, that's it, follow it. He colors in the story with characters and he contrasts them by putting them right next to each other. So now you've got a, a leader like David who's modeling for us reflection and humility, and you've got another leader standing right next to him, and this guy's name is Joab. And Joab has no time for reflection or humility, because in Joab's mind, the problem is never Joab. The problem is always somebody else. The problem is Absalom. How, David, why are you crying? This isn't your fault. You remember that Joab was the man who followed David's order to have Bathsheba's husband murdered? Joab's got a, a long list of dead bodies. He killed Abner, the head of Saul's army. He killed Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. He's the one who killed Absalom in the last chapter. Absalom's, or excuse me, Joab's leadership style is to not self-reflect, it's to use the sword. And so while we have David sitting here reflecting, you've got Joab sitting here saying there's no reason to weep 
because there's somebody else to blame. And this is the beginning as we go into these chapters on what the Bible is trying to get us to reflect on. That there are two ways to solve your problems. There are two ways to rebuild your kingdom. After your failure, there's two ways to come back from that failure. You come back humble with your eyes on Christ, or you come back proud with your eyes on everybody else because it was their fault. One man uses his knees to solve problems, and the other man uses a sword to solve his problems. And the Bible is asking you today through the power of the Holy Spirit to consider which man are you? Which woman are you? How do you solve your problems? Let's go to the second half of verse eight. At this point, Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, well, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and he saved us from the hands of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? The tribes are fighting because when David left town, they sided with Absalom and now the man they sided with is dead. So what do you do? Do you bring David back? He's not a bad king. He conquered the Philistines. He brought an end to Absalom. But we didn't pick him. We chose somebody else. So now that he's coming back in town, do we bring him back or do we pick another one of his sons? There's turmoil going on here. Verse 11, David, King David sent this message to Zadok and Abathar, the priests. He says, I want the priest to give this message to the tribal leaders. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? That's a fancy way of saying the northern tribes don't have a problem with me being their king. Why is the tribe that I'm from struggling to put me back as king? You are my brothers, verse 12 says. You are bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God so, excuse me, God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent the word to the king, return both you and your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over to the Jordan. So in the midst of this conflict of the tribal leaders not knowing what they're going to do, David has two options. He can pick the sword or he can pick diplomacy. He can pick Joab's way or David's way. See, he's the rightful king. God gave him that throne. And one option he has is to not have a conversation with the tribal leaders, but just come back in with a sword and say, who doesn't want me as their king? And just sit on the throne. That's Joab's preferred method. But that's not David's humble preferred method. Because this experience this second experience where someone wants you dead and you have to hide in the wilderness it has profoundly changed him. It has made him reflect on his years in the wilderness of, uh, under Saul. And when he took the throne after Saul's death, he didn't take it by force. 
He waited for the tribal leaders to hand it over to him, and he's doing the same thing here. But he doesn't just wait for them. What he actually does is he appeals with something a little sweeter. There's this man named Amasa. Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. So David was king and his commander was Joab. And when Absalom set himself up as king and came into Jerusalem, he needed a commander of his army, so he appointed this guy named Amasa. So Absalom and Amasa come into Jerusalem as David and Joab are leaving Jerusalem. Amasa stays home, Absalom goes out to war, Absalom dies, David comes back with Joab, and he's not liking the kind of leader that Joab is. Because every time he turns around, Joab's murdering somebody. Joab, how did that meeting go? It went beautifully. (laughs) They're gonna do exactly what you want them to do. Because he's dead. David's had enough of this, so what he does, and news has gotten to David that Joab is the one who's killed Absalom. Three strikes, you're out. So third dead body, like, we're done. So David fires Joab and hires Absalom's commander, Amasa, in order to sweeten the deal to the tribal leaders. If you come back, I will let the king that you chose that is now dead, I will let that man's commander now run my army. No hard feelings. And it works. Judah agrees, and David starts his journey home, choosing diplomacy over murder. Let's go to verse 16. As soon as he crosses over, he comes back, and Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Barim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Now, you remember Shimei from the last chapter? He's the one who was shouting curses at David as David was leaving town. And Abishai, David's right-hand man, wanted to kill Shimei. And David said, don't kill that man. He's probably speaking God's curses over me. I don't know what this guy's saying, but it's probably God speaking through him, so don't kill him. David comes back over the Jordan River and the first man he sees is the guy who was cursing him. And with him, it's funny, isn't it? Like, of course you're the first one there. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul. And his 15 sons and his 20 servants rushed down to the Jordan before the king. Ziba was the guy who was supposed to be over Mephibosheth's house and left with the donkeys in the middle of the night with some story that Mephibosheth was gonna turn on King David. So now all the people who turned their back on David and were in it for self-serving reasons and spoke curses over David, now they're the first ones greeting him back as he crosses the Jordan River. They crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. He said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned, therefore behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord, the king. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Now, in case you've forgotten, Abishai and Joab are brothers. 
They are the sons of David's sister. And David says, what am I gonna do with you, you sons of Zariah? that you should this day be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know. For, for do I not know that I am this king, this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now this is a really funny story. On David's way home, he's meeting rebels and friends and the first one there is this guy named Shimei, who was cursing David and wants to be, uh, he wants off the hook, he wants forgiveness. And David, the returning king, is here to forgive debts and pardon people, but next to him is somebody who's acting in the spirit of Joab, Joab's brother, Abishai. And Abishai says, this guy should die for what he said. And this whole story, it sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? The king has these two brothers who are such hotheads that at every turn they just wanna punish people who don't accept the king. There's a story in Luke 9.53. There's these two boys, the sons of thunder, and Jesus goes into this town and the town doesn't want anything to do with Jesus and their way of dealing with the problem is Jesus. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven on this town and take care of these folks? We will absolutely do it because that's what they deserve if you reject the king. <laughs> and the story has another familiar ring too. Do you remember the story where Jesus and Peter are having a conversation and Peter tells Jesus what's not gonna happen, you're not gonna go to Jerusalem, you're not gonna die, and what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me. The word Satan in Hebrew is the very same word in verse 22 that's translated in English as adversary. Get behind me adversary, get behind me, Satan. What am I gonna do with you sons of Zariah, you sons of thunder? Get behind me, Satan. What are we to make of this? That it doesn't matter that the story is separated by thousands of years between two different kings. Our ways are always our ways, and they rarely match up to the king. We always think we know better, and we're always trying to push our ways in front of the king, and our ways always seem to look like Joab and Abishai and the sons of thunder. They're not getting it, so let's go ahead and punish now. But that's not what the king is here to do. The king is here to pardon the king is here to forgive. The king is here to wash away debts with his own bloodshed. But the king is also struggling with his own followers because his own followers want to settle debts, get even. They want to put people in their place. I just want you to consider how long-suffering our king is with his people when he has to suffer through all of our nonsense because we simply refuse to accept his ways over our ways. Let's go to verse 24. Mephibosheth, 
The son of Saul came down to meet the king, and he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. The appearance shows us where Mephibosheth's heart really was. He was heartbroken that the king had left. He was not trying to betray David. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my lord, my king, my servant, Ziba, he deceived me. For your servant said to him, I'm gonna saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because I'm lame, I can't walk. But your servant slandered your servant to my lord, the king. Ziba told you a lie. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God. So do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's household were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? I'm not gonna make my case. You've already shown me more hospitality in my life than anybody has ever shown me. I'm putting my future in your hands. Verse 29, the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take it all. Since my lord the king has come home safely, all I really wanted was you to be back safe because you're the only one who's ever been kind to me. I don't want land, I don't need property, all I need is you. And then the story shifts to this other character. Now Barzile, the Gilead, excuse me, the Gileadite, had come down from Ragalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Now Barzile was a very old man, 80 years old. Uh, 80, that's what the Bible calls you old, if you're 80. So you're old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim. For he was a very wealthy man. So when David was in hiding from Absalom, this man cared for David. He let David stay in his house. He fed him food. Verse 33, the king said to Barzile, come over with me and let me provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Let me return the favor. And Barzile said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up and live with a king in Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? Can I, can, can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? When then, why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? He's saying, I've got a home. You don't need to take me on. Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the King. I'll come with you just a little bit, but why should the King repay me with such a reward? I was just being kind to the King. But please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king said, all right, Chimham shall go with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I will do for you. And then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over. And the king kissed Brazile and blessed him and returned him to his own home. And the king went on to Gilgal and Shimham went with him. And all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. So we started this study today asking ourselves what kind of 
kind of king is going to return after what he's learned in this process? What is he going to be like? What is King David? How is he going to treat those who have wronged him? And what we find is him clearing all of the issues up with Ziba and Mephibosheth and offering hospitality to Barzillai and his servant. He's letting Shimei off the hook and he's putting Abishai in his place. What kind of man is returning to Israel? A shepherd is returning to Israel. The man who is going to lead Israel is the kind of man God wants to lead Israel, a shepherd. And he's going forth with forgiveness. He's not looking to quarrel. He's not looking to start a rebellion. He's looking to bring peace back to the city. But not everyone wants what the king wants. And in the midst of the king doing his great work among God's people, forgiving sin, clearing slates, wiping away sin, restoring people who were far away, working through the ministry of reconciliation, there are those who want to set themselves against the work of the king. And all they want is calamity and destruction and power for themselves. But this is the life of the shepherd. You have to tend the sheep to prepare them to become a sacrifice for the Lord and you've got to keep the wolves out. And if you only do one of those jobs, the wolves will be out but the sheep will suffer. Or the sheep, they will have a nice comfy bed and they will feel so good about themselves but they will be ravished by wolves. The shepherd has to do both. And David, as he comes back into town, he has to do both. A rebellion is brewing even in the midst of him letting people off the hook. Go to verse 41. All the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away from and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? So the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes, Israel, they're mad that Judah is acting all nice and kind to David when they're the ones who chose Absalom over David. The men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is our close relative. He's from our tribe. Why then are you so angry at this matter? Have we not eaten at all the king's expense? He he hasn't bribed us. We've done this on our own accord. He hasn't given us any gift. Verse 43, the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. Why, excuse me, we have 10 shares in the king and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel? And it happened to be there, in that midst of turmoil, a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet in the middle of all the nonsense and says, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So in the middle of all of the forgiveness and the restoration A division is going on between the north and the south. 
Now, there's always a division between the North and the South. It seems to, not matter what country it is, there always seems to be a division. There's never a division between the East and the West. It's always the North and the South. And in the North, you have these 10 tribes, and in the South, you have Judah. And you had Benjamin also, but he kind of switched sides. Sometimes he was North, sometimes he was South. But Judah was the primary Southern region. Now this is, by the time David's grandson takes the throne, the whole kingdom is gonna split, and the, and the north is gonna have their own king, and the south is gonna have their own king, and it's gonna be mayhem for many years. But at this point, David's still trying to hold the nation together. But the north is mad because the southern tribes are treating them poorly. They're getting all of the fame and honor of bringing the king back when they were the ones who chose to kick the king out in the first place. The 10 tribes of the north, they wanted to keep David, but because they were slighted, they took offense, and a man rose up in the middle of it named Sheba. And he takes advantage of this, and he brings about a rebellion. But here's the thing, this is is why this rebellion is so dangerous, because Sheba is from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's the same tribe Saul was from. See, if you're just looking at the political aspects of this, Saul was chosen by God to be king. Saul was a Benjamite. Saul's ancestors should have stayed on the throne, but God kicked him off the throne and chose someone else. He chose David from the tribe of Judah. So there is a sense among the Benjamites that they have a claim to this this throne, then somebody else is sitting on it, and this guy named Sheba takes advantage He rises up in the middle of the argument and says, I tell you what, Israel, let's get out of here. We're going to reject David as our king if they're not gonna show us respect. So they turn around and go home. David now has an issue he has to solve. Now I said earlier that good shepherds tend the flock and keep out the wolves. It needs to be in that order. You can't lead with keeping the wolves out because the sheep are always going to come second. The sheep have to be cared for, raised up, trained, and also you have to keep the wolves out. But caring comes first. That's what David leads with. Joab is a different story, and we're gonna find that out in a minute. The fascinating part about these two chapters is that Joab's name is mentioned over 22 times because these two men are set up against each other as contrasting examples of what kind of leader you should be. So David is modeling for us, how do you return from failure? You return from failure humble. You return from failure forgiving. You return from failure working on reconciliation, not being right, but there's another guy who desperately wants to be right, and he'll do anything to keep his power. Let's go to verse three. The story gets intense. Now remember, Amasa is the head of David's army at this point, and Joab has been fired, but Joab hasn't disappeared, he's still around. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took 10 concubines whom he had left to care for for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of, his, of their death, living as if in widowhood. These are the, ten, these are the concubines who Absalom uh, exploited in the previous chapter in order to display his dominance as a better king over his father. And the king says to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me. 
within three days and be here for yourself. So he says to his commander, I want you to go out to Judah. I want you to get all of the men that you can find and we're gonna go out and we're gonna chase down this guy named Sheba. We're gonna deal with this rebellion. I've done all the tending and caring of the flock that I need to and it's time to deal with the wolves. So go get me men. So Amasa leaves to go find men of Judah. Verse five, Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that he had been appointed him. Amasa wasn't good at time. He's like some church folk that they don't realize the church starts at 10 o'clock. They think it starts at like 1017 or 1031. That's Amasa. There's one in every one of God's family. They just show up whenever, whenever. David says to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there he went out after him. Excuse me, there he went out after him, Joab's men and the Chetherites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So Amasa is late, so what David says is we have to deal with this now. We can't wait for Amasa to get back because there's no telling when he's gonna be here. So Abishai, I want you to take the men. And Joab's over in the corner going, I'm here, I can do it. David's like, no, Abishai, your brother, not you, Abishai. So Abishai takes the men, they go out, and they start heading to deal with this Sheba issue. It's time to deal with unrepentant sin but there's a problem because Abishai and Joab are brothers. And as they start heading out, pick up in verse eight. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. So he finally shows up and Joab was wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it, it fell out of its sheath into his hand. And Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard, as you did back in those days, with his right hand to kiss him. And Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's other hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. He died. Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took a stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa on the ground lay wallowing in his own blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. And when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So on the way out of town, Abishai is leading David's army to go take care of Sheba. Joab is just kind of shuffling along, hanging out with his brother, and they come up on Amasa. Amasa has amassed all of the men of Judah. So Amasa's got a, a group, and Abishai's got David's warriors, and Joab comes up with a sword, and grabs him by the beard and strikes him right there in the stomach and kills him in front of everybody. And his body is laying on the ground, bleeding, and Joab's servant comes up and shouts to the men who have come with Amasa, it's time to pick who you're with. You with Joab and David or not? 
Now, what would you do? I just watched this dude just, he just stuck him right in the belly. I guess, yeah, we're with David, Joab, yeah, man, we're with, what do we do now? So Joab has his job back. He pushes his little brother to the side, and Joab is now the head of David's army. And here's the irony of the whole situation. Joab was fired, but he took his job back because he murdered the guy who had his job. This is the fourth murder on Joab's rap sheet. And what we have now is a rebel chasing a rebel. A, a man who is rebelling against David's wishes to take out a man who is rebelling against David's wishes. This is the mind of Joab. The man who does not consider his actions, he only considers the result. The ends justify the means. I'm doing the right thing. Don't question my ways. Mm, the Bible is not okay with that. God is clear that the ways are part of the end result. There is not just you coming to this conclusion. There is the entire journey you took on the way to get there. Now, before we finish the story, I want you to have a mental picture of where, where this is taking place. So if you throw that map up on the screen... I want to show you the path of this rebel hunting a rebel. So we're going to zoom in right here on the Middle East. What you have is over here, Mahanaim. This is where David was hiding out in. This is the area where the battle took place where Absalom died. The red line is David traveling back to Jerusalem. He crosses over the Jordan River here, comes over to Jericho. And he comes back to Jerusalem. The yellow line is the path of Joab and Abishai traveling north to find this guy named Sheba. Now it's funny, see how far Sheba ran? He's all like, we don't want anything to do with you, David. And he turns around and runs all the way to the north, higher than the Sea of Galilee. So he's hiding out up here in the mountains and Joab and Abishai are gonna go take care of him. Now let's see what happens when Joab shows up. Now remember, Joab's ways... They're not like David's ways. His ways are violent, they involve the sword, they involve destruction in any means necessary. Verse 14, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Obeth, Maaka, and all the Bikrites, Bikritites assembled and followed him in, and all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth, Maaka. They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart, but they were battering the wall to throw it down. And a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. So he came near to her and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, yes, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he said, all right, I'm listening. And she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. So our town is known for diplomacy. It's known for listening and considering and bringing about an outcome. Verse 19, 
I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab says, well, far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. (laughs) Yeah, the irony. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up, give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went into all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it over the wall to Joab. And so he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, and every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Joab remained in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Eliad was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abathar were priests, and Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. So we conclude with a final contrast of wisdom and violence. Joab is trying to solve problems the way that Joab always solves problems, with brute force. But the author wants you to see something today. That brute force is not the only option, it's not even the right option. Joab was willing to bring so much collateral damage that he brought an entire city to the ground because of one man. But one woman steps forward and offers Joab wisdom in the same way that David was trying to function in wisdom. So what do we make of this story? After all of this reading and all of these characters, what are we supposed to glean? What is the Spirit showing us today? about the way that we're supposed to return from failure, about the way that we're supposed to rebuild in the process. Well, the first thing it shows us is that reconciliation and restoration are a very messy business. But it's worth it. It's messy business, but it's business worth doing. For every person that rebelled against David, he received forgiveness and their sins were covered. But in the midst of that, there was also turmoil about who should be the king. In the midst of all of the mess, it is worth working towards reconciliation and restoration. This is why Paul reminds us that because Christ brought the ministry of reconciliation, we are now members of participating in the ministry of reconciliation. You have a job. Your job is to be part of bringing people into reconciliation with a holy God. To preach the good news to them that Jesus Christ has forgiven their sins and the wrath of God against them has been satisfied because of his shed blood. It's messy business, but it's worth doing. But the other thing that it shows us is that in the ministry of reconciliation, it's going to require you forgiving people. It means that you're going to have to forget some of those words that you heard people say about you. Hear me. 
Because when we talk about wanting to serve Christ, I don't know if we always are aware that that's included on the list of what that means. Hear me. Coming to Christ is not just eating cotton candy and riding fair rides. It is painful work of letting people who have wronged you off the hook because you have wronged a holy God and he let you off the hook. That's the work of the ministry of reconciliation. How do you rebuild? You don't rebuild with a sword. You rebuild on your knees. You rebuild weeping. You come back from failure humble, not swinging your dagger, grabbing people by the beard and shoving a sword in their gut. What we're witnessing while we watch David's reconciliation and return is biblical justice. If something isn't right, you make it right. And you live with the expectation that moving forward, we will always do the right thing. This is the way that King David did things, and this is the way that King Jesus does things. But it's not the only way to do things. There's another way that's vying for your attention. There's another way that wants your affection. There's another way that's stirring on the inside of your heart telling you you're right. You have the right to be mad. You have the right to hold a grudge. What they did was so bad it can never be forgiven. Keep writing them off. Keep ignoring them. Don't respond to that text. Pretend they don't exist. If you find out that you're going somewhere and that person's going to show up, then don't go. Hold a grudge. This is the way of Joab. It is the way of Abishai and it is the way of Satan. I'm going to expose for you that what you have been, been believing is a lie. What the king deals in is forgiveness and reconciliation and moving forward and letting people off the hook. And what the enemy deals in is deception and lies and murder. And you can tell yourself when that little voice gets inside of your head, God, no, 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 I'm doing the right thing. And I'm doing it no matter the cost Whatever means necessary, doesn't matter the collateral damage, I've got to be right. <clears throat> In the moment, it feels like you're justified because the enemy has convinced you that you are right and he is right, but I'm going to tell you as clear as I possibly can, that way of living is anti-Christ. And there's coming a man who's going to embody that. And there's coming an entire movement caught up. <clears throat> Revelation calls it Babylon. It's already here. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's going to be the way that everybody solves their problems. And it's going to be so tempting that you think that since everybody's on board that it is the right way, but I am telling you it is the wrong way. So as we look at the scripture today, and we're presented with these two characters of David and Joab, and we're considering how do we rebuild things? How do we rebuild friendships? How do we rebuild family? How do we rebuild our trust in the local church? 
How do I start trusting again? How do I stop blaming past hurts on why I'm not currently doing any ministry right now? How do I move forward out of this state of just being completely locked in paralyzing fear because I feel like I don't know enough or something, somebody sinned against me or I saw things online that I didn't like about this church or, or I read this one blog about this one person or I spent too much time on YouTube listening to other people talk about things or I spend most of my time, like I, I don't really know the Bible, I haven't read it, but I've read a lot of people who have read it and they've said these things and they've let me down. How do you rebuild moving forward? David shows us. It's through humility and repentance and getting low. But you have to be aware that there is another way that is gonna vie for your attention and it's gonna convince you it is the right way and that is through violence, it is through war, it is through swinging the sword, it is through getting your, getting, ma making sure that you're always right, it is through putting other people in their place, it is by stepping on other people to achieve your personal goals because all that matters is being right. Now as I'm saying this, everyone in here is thinking, well I want the first one. We all agree as a society the second one's pretty bad. I don't want any part of that. So praise God for all of us at this moment thinking, I want God's ways and not Satan's ways. Praise God, we're all on the same page. But it's Sunday morning. What's gonna happen tomorrow? Well, tomorrow's close to Sunday, so you might be fine. What's gonna happen on Thursday at four o'clock? What happens the next time your neighbor wants to come over and argue with you about something to do with your lawn? or a waitress at a restaurant who's supposed to be serving you food doesn't give you the quality of service you think you should give. You, you're gonna lose it? You're gonna pull the dagger out? Praise God for all of us agreeing that David's ways are best. But please, it's not enough to say that Joab's ways are evil and I'm gonna keep them from me. You also have to be careful of how close you keep Joab to David. Hear me, and this is what I wanna end on. It's not enough for you to say, I'm gonna choose God's ways. You have to also be careful about who you choose to get close to you because that's one of the ways the enemy brings his ways into your life. If you're not careful, you'll end up exactly like David who was doing what God wanted him to do, but kept his cousin so close that every time he turned around, people are getting murdered even though it's not David's fault. At some point, it becomes David's fault because David won't deal with Joab. So you may be able to say in your heart, I don't want Joab in here, but be careful about keeping Joab in your house. Be careful about working next to Joab. Be careful about going to games with Joab and just having a drink with Joab because the enemy will infiltrate your life by any means necessary. And if you're not careful, you will find yourself in a similar situation of David where you are fixed on Christ and all you want is reconciliation, but the people you have surrounded yourself with, all they want is death and destruction. And you feel like you can't make any headway. I'm telling you why. It's because Joab is too close. Let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.